Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years, in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out until our 29th year of marriage that we were a neurodiverse couple. And I've been divorced since 2018, and together we have an amazing adult daughter who's thriving and doing fantastic. And today I have another wonderful guest on the podcast. His name is Enoch, and I have had the opportunity to know him for maybe over a year. He's joined my support groups, and he has some wonderful things to share today. So welcome, Enoch, to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. Thank you, Mona. Great to be here. Awesome. So I usually start by having the guests share a little bit about their story and kind of what brought them to the point they are in their life. So I'd love if you could share a little bit about what's been going on in your life. Certainly. Well, I was married for 21 years, uh, but I just uh, finalized uh, our divorce after 21 years, just before Christmas. Um, My wife had depression from before we were married, and I knew about. Um, And early in our marriage, we adopted two infants from overseas. Um, But it wasn't until 16 years into the marriage that my partner was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder uh, and started to get treatment for that. And three years later, um, I began to suspect there was something else at play uh, in our relationship and started uh, suspecting that uh, autism spectrum or ASD might be uh, part of the equation. Um, that was 19 years into the marriage. We saw uh, several different marriage counselors and the last one specialized in neurodiverse relationships. Uh, somebody that I come across um, from listening to your podcast, I believe. Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, and uh, that uh, counselor uh, confirmed that we were indeed a neurodivergent my partner decided to stop counseling after about half a year of counseling with this person. And she did not feel that a progress was being made and that we were stuck in the same cycles over and over. I felt differently that we were given assignments to complete, um, tools and strategies to help our communication. But it soon became clearer that my partner did not have the energy nor the motivation to carry out those assignments or to use those tools on a regular basis. So the counselor confirmed we were uh, a neurodivergent couple exhibiting classic communications patterns, the roundabouts. Um, that diagnosis and resented any suggestion that she might be on the spectrum. She filed for divorce shortly after quitting counseling for the second time. And I believe that she had suffered relational burnout and was really protecting herself from further demands from me and our relationship. Hmm. Um, the, how Part of my journey actually comes through the time that I spent uh, uh, with you on your neurodiverse uh, support groups, um, the, the Zoom meetings that uh, you know, we were uh, part of twice a month. And it was through that where I found for the first time a community that really understood what I was going through. And I didn't have to explain myself. I didn't have to convince anybody of, of this loneliness, this profound sense of loneliness that I've, I've, I've experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a really healing uh, uh, time for me. And I, I soon found out, realized that um, what I brought to the discussion was some of my research about attention deficit disorder, about executive functioning. And, and I had all these links to articles and online resources and podcasts and videos that I would kind of pop in discussions. Um, and I think over a period of time, you were saying, Enoch, you need to create your own support group. You have so much to <laughs> offer. <laughs> and, and in fact, I actually, based on your strong encouragement, I actually did that. And I, uh, I a year ago, exactly a year ago, uh, starting tomorrow, uh, I, I had my I had my own uh, uh, neurotypical support group uh, that I conducted uh, and uh, over Zoom, and we meet every you know three week three weeks or so, um, and that's been just a wonderful place. Um, but a lot of that uh, was based on um, a, se- a sense of the feedback that I got that oh you've got some really good resources and some 
great perspectives to share with other people. Mm-hmm. And and for a long time, I was the only guy in, in your support group. <laughs> yes, you were. <laughs> I was the token male. Yes, you were. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, uh, but I do thank you for being a lifeline to me during that really dark period and, and encouraging me. And I think it's part of my therapy to actually uh, walk this path with other people mm-hmm. and be a resource for them. Um, and as they... As I help them, I'm helping myself and they are helping me uh, come to grips with, you know, how do I, what do I make uh, with uh, uh, this history of, of deprivation and, and uh, 20, 21 years of marriage, which, which now, you know, has is, ended. Is on wayside, has ended, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And I know that um, this can be so difficult for a lot of folks. And one of my saving graces, and um, pun kind of is intended, was to go to Grace Myhill's support group back in 2017 when I found out that I was in a neurodiverse marriage for 29 years and didn't know it. And I know that's one of the reasons that I offer the two free support groups that I offer for the neurotypical non-autistic partners, because I was desperate. You know, I thought, you know, at times I was going crazy. I couldn't understand how I could love my ex-husband so much. And we still have these unbelievable challenges. And I felt we were getting really toxic with each other and it wasn't healthy for either one of us. And then to be in a group with others who you can share your truth with, and they totally understand it. And I wish there were more groups for the autistic partners, free groups for the autistic partners, because I feel that, you know, being with people who are of the same neurotype or similar neurotype can help you understand that you're not alone, that you're not crazy, and that there are big divides between the neurotypes, because we don't understand our own brains and we don't understand our partner's brains and we don't know how to cross that divide which becomes you know deeper and deeper and deeper with the lack of understanding and the really unintentional hurt and pain that we cause each other do you agree absolutely absolutely Yeah. So I know one of the things that's really exciting that we're going to talk about is these amazing word pictures that you've created, Enoch. And I know it's really, it's a gift you have that you can take these concepts and turn them into almost like poetry, but you call them word pictures of um, an explanation of what's going on in your mind, in your head, in, or in your relationship, and then others see this in print, and they're like, oh my gosh, you explained it perfectly. I love you know the metaphors and how you did this. So we're going to go over three or four of these amazing word pictures that you've created, and then we'll probably do another podcast episode to go over the other three or four And I know one of the things that I hear from a lot of neurotypical non-autistic partners is the loneliness. And the autistic partner might feel loneliness too, but it it is probably a a different source that that loneliness is coming from. So I'd love to talk about the word picture you created and you called the onion of loneliness. So can we start with, you know, kind of why you created that and what it looks like for you. Yeah, certainly. Um, <clears throat> I think I've created these word pictures because they help make order in my mind of why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling mm. um, as a neurotypical. And, and I would couch this as a neurotypical in a neuro incongruent relationship. And so um, I think we, we talk about neurodiversity where there is one uh, partner who's neurotypical and one partner who is uh, neurodiverse, neurodivergent. Um, and I would say, I would tease that out a little further and say that uh, what's more, what's critical is that there's a mismatch between the two neurotypes. So you could have two, two neurotypicals together and they would mesh pretty well because they're relational needs uh, and the way they're expressed are in alignment. And you could have two neurodiverse divergent people um, that are uh, in the same relationship and they could mesh pretty well because there's some somewhat of a greater alignment in the needs and, and how they're expressed. 
but it is when there's a mismatch, when there's a neurodivergent uh, uh, married, uh, partnered with a neurotypical, that those those needs are mismatched. And so um, I kind of see myself as a cartographer and, and I make a map of this is where we are and this is why and, and gives some uh, context for maybe why we're feeling that way. So this is definitely the neurotypicals experience um, of what it feels like to be in, in this type of relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and so my, my primary audience is for neurotypicals and hopefully that the neurotypicals will have an aha moment or say, yes, that's it. That's exactly what I'm feeling. Thank you for codifying it. But I think there's a secondary purpose is that I'd like that uh, this is also a tool that they can communicate uh, with their friends and families and their support groups because oftentimes the neurotypical doesn't feel the support from even their family or friends who don't understand what they're going through. Um, and there's reasons for that. Um, and so part of these word pictures is gonna help uh, not only the neurotypical understand themselves, but also help the community around them understand what they're going through. And then maybe a tertiary uh, effect is that maybe this might be uh, spur discussions between the neurotypical and the neurodivergent uh, partner of, well, this is, this is how I feel as a neurotypical. I would like to see if we can come to some meeting of the minds or meeting of the hearts uh, about, uh, about this. And maybe it's, it gives them a, a tool for discussion. Yeah, I think that's great. And, you know, I know I have a lot of autistic listeners. And what I'd like to share with the autistic listeners is that maybe this is an opportunity for you to better understand what your partner might be feeling or going through, not in a way to shame or blame. But sometimes mm -hmm. autistic folks have alexithymia, and it's difficult for them to understand their own emotions or their and or their partner's emotions or other people's emotions. And another thing that is very common in neurodiverse relationships is that couples do not understand each other's perspectives. And so I'd love for those autistic listeners to listen to this with that kind of open mindset and feel free to send me emails if there's something that you would like to share um, that resonated with you or didn't resonate and or you can even comment on my Instagram. So I just wanted to kind of give that kind of um, disclaimer out there because I always try, I try, I d I'm not always successful in giving both sides an opportunity to share. Um, but I know that we all experience life in a neurodiverse relationship very differently. So with that said, let's talk a little bit about the onion of loneliness. All right. So I would propose that the most defining characteristic for an, a neurotypical partner is their sense of profound loneliness. And it's, I call it profound loneliness because it's different than the loneliness that you might feel if you haven't seen your friends in a while. Um, there's something more deeper, something more profound about it. And so I have this model of, of layers of loneliness um, and I'd like to kind of unpack those layers uh, a little bit. Sure. So um, let's, imagine there might be three different dimensions to the loneliness that the partner experiences. The first dimension stems from the lack of emotional connection with the neurotypicals partner. This plays out through a lack of reciprocity, particularly in verbal reciprocity and emotional reciprocity. In a healthy neurocongruent relationship, let's say where they're both NTs or they're both NDs, uh, neurodivergent um, partners, there would roughly be a similar level of initiation and corresponding response from both parties to the verbal and emotional interchanges. Both parties would exert a similar level of effort towards maintaining the flow of communication in the relationship, and both share a similar burden of being aware of the others' communication needs and attending to those needs and, and their emotions. In a neurodivergent relationship where, where one party is neurotypical, there is a significant mismatch 
in the frequency of initiation of conversation and emotional depth of sharing by each party, and the lion's share of the initiation turns out to be undertaken by the neurotypical partner. So the neurotypical partner often ends up feeling a sole burden for initiating deeper conversations that go beyond logistics or factual statements and delving into the realm of feelings. The lack of initiation of these types of conversations and interests and excitements and appreciation uh, for exploring these Divergent partner leaves the neurotypical partner feeling alone in their most primary relationship. And I think the key is that for a neurotypical, the, the marriage partnership is supposed to be the most significant relationship that we have, the one that we feel the most trust and the most comfort and the most uh, vulnerable with. And so when that's missing in that, <clears throat> that really, really... Uh, that mismatch between the expectations of what you're supposed to receive in this relationship and what you're actually receiving, that leads to a sense of love. And it's profound because it's the most primary. You're not, this is supposedly the place that you're getting the deepest and the most intimate connection and, and the near typical feels like they're, it's just not there. Yeah. And yeah. So can we stop for one second and just kind of process that a little bit and, I think this is what's so challenging when I do the couple support groups that I do for neurodiverse couples, because the needs of each partner are so different and they didn't necessarily know that going into the relationship or they knew it, but didn't talk about it when um, one partner has certain expectations of the other partner and vice versa and it wasn't addressed or discussed, then, you know, anger becomes, you know, more common in conversation, judgment, mm -hmm. blaming, shaming, all of that stuff. When the fact of the matter is, we just have different needs. And by explaining that to each other and respectfully giving the other person the space and the time to do what they need to do to get their needs met, things could get better. But I do think that it's really important for folks to know that as a non-autistic person, my emotional needs and my need for emotional reciprocity is always, I believe, going to be higher than the autistic partners that I've had. I mean, I've seen it over and over again. And that's okay. I just want to say this. That's okay if we can both get our needs met together and through other sources. And I'm not saying, you know, leaving your marriage and cheating or anything like that. I'm saying, do you have friends? Do you have family? Do you have a therapist? Do you have a coach? Do you have a support group, you know, that you can go to both for the autistic and the non-autistic partner? And I, I just want to say that because um, there may be loneliness on the side of the autistic partner. And it could be because the passions that you have in life are not the passions that your partner has and you want to talk about them and they really don't want to listen anymore. And that can be really lonely. Or your partner doesn't understand that you need alone time, a lot of alone time, especially after a full week of work and they, they are judging you and you feel lonely because you're not understood. So I'm just kind of going to play that other side, Enoch, and yep. put that out there because I think we all suffer when we don't understand ourselves and each other. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I would also add that our awareness of our needs is evolving all the time. And right. we often, you know, when we're young and we start getting married uh, at, the, at the beginning of marriage, we are not necessarily aware of what our needs are. No. <laughs> and particularly on an emotional awareness and self-reflection and knowing what I need to uh, to to be thriving, uh, that's not necessarily something that we're born innate with. And plus, um, it takes many years to begin to understand what our needs are and to be able to verbalize that and to be aware and say, oh, this is a core part of who I am. And if I don't get this uh, relational need addressed, then I'm really going to feel a lack. I'm really going to feel something's missing there. Yeah.
Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about how the loneliness is impacted when we have conversations with friends and family. Yeah, that's the second dimension of loneliness. Um, and, and that goes when, uh, when our, our friends understand the depth of what we've experienced, the depth of aloneness that we have in our own marriage. They see a side of our partner that is different from the, the partner that we experience behind closed doors at home. And so oftentimes um, our friends will, will just brush us off and say, oh, you know, the loneliness is, is typical. Most relationships are going to be lonely to some degree and you just can't get all your needs met um, from, from your partner. But they are experiencing an, a uh, satiation in their own primary relationship, and they don't have uh, a concept to understand how we don't experience that as neurotypical, and that really there is not a lot of positive uh, intimacy types of experiences that, uh, that we can rely on that build a foundation of trust for us. And so I think the sense of not being known and not being believed um, by our best friends or our family, because they see uh, a very pleasant, in, they have pleasant interactions with uh, our partner, um, but we understand that, that what they see, what they experience of our partner is very different uh, from the unmasked partner that we get uh, when they come in the door at home. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, when our support community doesn't get us, when our doesn't believe us, that is a deeper sense, uh, that there's a deeper sense of loneliness that comes from that, um, which is really, a, you know, what I consider the second dimension. Yeah. It can lead some neurotypicals to question their own sanity. Um, and, and they don't understand how come my friends and family uh, think this poorly of me, or they blame me for, uh, for uh, the demise of the marriage because they can't believe uh, that uh, uh, what we are saying about how we experience our partners. Yeah. And this is, again, a challenge because the autistic partner may not um, realize or see that they are masking and that they're presenting a different side of themselves to family and friends and I saw this with my ex-husband and I saw this with my father who was autistic and he did not know it you know the person they were outside the home is very different and one of the things and I've said this before on the podcast that we all have to remember is our partner will never have a relationship with anybody else like the relationship they have with us. And what that includes is, you know, if we have children, it's, you know, parenting. If we share finances, it's paying bills together. If we share a house together, it's doing chores together. If we decide to travel together, it's making plans and actually going on trips together. It's family events. It's the ups and downs of life. And every other relationship that they will have outside of their intimate romantic relationship is going to be a little bit more superficial. It's just going to be different than the relationship they have with us. And I do know now, I didn't know during my marriage, that a lot of that is due to overload, you know, that um, sometimes our partners may not be able to give us what we want or understand that we're lonely because they're in a kind of self-protection mode and so overloaded that they just need their time alone. And I didn't understand that in my marriage. I understand it now, but I didn't understand it then. So those are the first two layers. And there's one more layer to the onion of loneliness. So let's talk about that one. Okay. So the third layer comes when the neurotypical partner feels trapped and there's, it can often feel like they're in a prison or a dungeon that they can't get out of. And, and I think um, in the support groups that, that I've been a part of, it can tend to be a self-selecting group because some neurotypical partners will say, well, you know what, this relationship's not working for me. I'm going to leave. And, 
that problem. But there is a significant number of neurotypical partners who are not able to make that choice. And that could be due to various reasons. It could be due to financial reasons. It could be due to moral or religious or ethical reasons where they feel like I can't, um, I can't choose out of this relationship. And so there's a sense of being stuck in a place where they're recognizing that their needs are not going to be met and they're for the foreseeable future. And if they project this for the rest of their lives, if they are committed to this marriage um, and they don't feel the freedom to leave the marriage, then there is a profound, profound sense of loneliness uh, that comes from the hopelessness that I'm stuck in this place where I'm invisible and my needs are not acknowledged and they're not validated and they're not uh, attended to uh, by the person who uh, I'm supposed to be with. And I'm not getting support from my family and friends who should know me, but they don't believe me and they don't have a clue to how deep that deprivation that I experience is. And so this can feel like a prison. Um, and I think when you're in solitary confinement, there's that really, really magnifies that sense of profound loneliness. And so I think that really encapsulates the, 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 the three layers, the three dimensions of loneliness that aren't necessarily something you would see from the outside, but you definitely experience once you're in it. In, in the long term as a neurotypical. Yeah. And so I want to say again to the autistic partners out there, if you're hearing this and you're feeling something that you haven't felt before, if it is um, making you feel uncomfortable, what I would say is maybe have a, a time where you can have your partner listen to this episode if you don't listen to them together and ask if your partner is feeling this, any of these things. And if they are, what you can work on together. Because I do believe, I do believe that many neurodiverse couples out there are thriving. We are not necessarily hearing from them in the support groups that I'm running because the people that are contacting me are struggling. And many of them have been married for 10, 20, 30, even 40 years and are just finding out that their partner is autistic. So I really do want to encourage all of you to take all of this, these word pictures as an opportunity to have conversations with your partner so you can better understand each other. So let's go to the second one, which you call cup versus barrel, pond versus stream. Yes. <clears throat> so this, uh, this word picture really describes the relational needs that um, are brought into the relationship. And so I would um, model uh, the, the near, near typical uh, partner's relational needs as a barrel and the neurodivergent uh, partner's uh, needs as a cup. And what this picture really teases out is that there, there are different, um, both the quality of connection and the quantity of connection is different for a neurotypical versus a neurodivergent person. Um, and um, what I would uh, propose is that a neurodivergent uh, partner's needs, um, which uh, might be smaller uh, in order uh, a comfortable relationship, both in quantity of uh, connection and in the quality of the connection. And so uh, I, I would propose that the neurodivergent uh, partner uh, values predictability and space in a relationship. They want things to be predictable. They don't like new things that uh, are unpredictable. But the neurotypical partner actually needs growth and interconnections in order uh, for their needs to be uh, satiated. And so there, if you have a cup filled with a, a small amount of effort, um, whereas a barrel uh, you need a lot more content to fill that barrel for that barrel to be full. Um, and so um, it can often feel for the neurotypical person that 
we're in this partnership, this relationship, and my partner's getting their needs filled all the time. And their needs can be filled just by proximity. If we're under the same roof, we're in, if we're in the same room, that my partner is happy uh, because that fills their cup of, of relational need. Whereas for the neurotypical, they have what, a, by comparison, looks like a much larger vessel that needs to be filled. Um, and, and so I would imagine for, uh, and the way that it's filled is very different. Proximity is not enough. There needs to be interaction. There needs to be initiation. There needs to be reciprocity of, of words, uh, of emotions. There needs to be vulnerability and exploration and curiosity. And so those interconnections are what fills the bucket for the neurotypical, but they're not getting, they're not experiencing their partner being a, their bucket or their, their barrel of needs. Um, and what's also interesting is that it's not just a, a barrel um, that's a larger version of, of the cup, but the barrel has holes in it. And the holes makes it porous. So whatever you leaks out of the barrel over time. And so the barrel of needs needs to constantly be replenished in order for that barrel to be full. And I think that is a major critical difference between how a neurotypical navigates a relationship and how maybe a neurodivergent person navigates um, the relationship. And, and what the holes signifies is the impact of time in a relationship. So the holes means that whatever you put into the barrel uh, over time is reduced or it decays. There's a self uh, automatic decay into the bids for connections, the, the significant conversations, the affections that are expressed. They mean a lot in in, in, in the present, but oh, at the longer, the more time that elapses, the effect of those deposits into that barrel. And so for near typical, they hope and they need a constant replenishment uh, of those um, deposits into the barrel of the relationship. Mm -hmm. um, for the neurodivergent person, they may, they may say to themselves, well, nothing's changed in the relationship. I told you I loved you on the wedding day and that hasn't changed. So I don't need to keep saying it because it's still true. And I will tell you if it's different. And if I don't tell you, then it isn't different. And so it's the same. Uh, so I don't need to keep telling you, but for near typical that they need a constant reaffirmation of those, uh, those inputs. Right. Uh, so to speak. Right. And, and, and I love the explanation and I love the analogies and I think it's important, again, for both partners to understand we have often very, very different needs. And if we come into the relationship not having conversations about what we need, even if we don't know exactly what we need, but, you know, as a single person, you know, you enjoyed your alone time or you enjoyed working on your hobbies or your passions for hours and hours at a time, or you enjoyed socializing with friends or family or traveling. All those things are still things you enjoy, but you may not have discussed them at any length with your partner and your expectations may be that they can read your mind uh, alert. None of us, I, I, I don't know anybody that can read my mind. I mean, um, and I have never had a partner who could. So if we can't be very specific about what it is we need to thrive as an individual and in relationship with our partner, and if our partner gets defensive or they don't understand or they judge us, then we may need a third party to help kind of navigate those conversations because this is really critical. You know, if one partner, the neurodivergent partner needs a lot more alone time and doesn't like hugging or doesn't like showing physical um, intimacy, and the non-autistic neurotypical partner really wants a hug when their partner comes home from work, that's going to create challenges. So what are some of the things that you as a couple can do so that each of you can get your needs met? I mean, it may be something as simple as you sit on the couch 
and touch hands for uh, a few seconds so that your partner who needs that physical touch can have it. If that's not possible, I also um, think that there's an opportunity for some discernment. You know, are you in this relationship with a person, whether you're the autistic or the non-autistic person, who really cannot meet enough of the needs that you have that should, and I say should, be met in a romantic relationship. I know there are some neurodiverse couples who have opened up their marriage. That's not something, or their relationship, that's not something that everybody would want to do. But if you can't get your core needs met in your romantic relationship, then it is an opportunity for you to discern whether this is the right relationship for you. So anything else about that word picture before we go on to the third one? Yeah, I, I think that um, the dynamic nature of needs for a neurotypical can, can also end up being an oppressive, feel like an oppressive uh, demand to the neurodivergent partner. Um, and maybe another way to look at the cup versus barrel, leaky barrel, uh, picture is to think of a pond versus a stream. And a pond is a body of water where the water flows into the pond and it stays in the pond and fixed size. Um, and, and there you have it. Whereas uh, a stream is a moving body of water um, and things are going into the stream and going out of the stream. And the stream can only continue to be a stream if there is a constant reflect, ref, refresh of the water because it's going in and going out. Um, and so um, this, this, the stream can only remain full if there's new, new inputs that are going into that stream. Um, and so for uh, when this hits in a relational sense, the neurodivergent may want their pond uh, to be, uh, it, it's a static picture. It's, uh, it's predictable. There's no things that uh, they, they value the predictability and the sameness over and over again. Uh, and that's what's comforting and that's what's safe for their neurodivergent. Uh, but uh, the demands of constantly needing to attend to refill uh, this uh, stream uh, can lead to a lot of frustration, I believe, on the neurodivergent person. Um, and instead of being a opportunity to build connection the neurotypicals needs feel like demands uh, that uh, become uh, oppositional and uh, insatiable. And so one of the things I hear from neurotypical uh, partners is that my partner feels like my emotional needs are insatiable, that they can never possibly meet them. Um, and, and so I think that's a big frustration um, because at the, the neurotypical will offer um, their needs as a point of vulnerability, as a point of trust. Uh, but then the neurodivergent per partner may experience them as a demand that is failed. So why even begin? Because I'm going to fail anyways. And so that sets up an adversarial dynamic. Um, and uh, the neurotypical feels ignored and unseen. And the neurodivergent uh, partner feels like, oh, there's... Uh, there's this person that uh, has unreasonable demands that I cannot possibly meet. And so it just leads to a lot of uh, negativity and frustration. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. That was the story in my marriage. And I'd like to share with the listeners that one of the things that I've been doing a lot of research on over the last few years because I've been looking in the mirror a lot and thinking about what I could have done differently in my marriage. Not that we would have not gotten a divorce, because I think at some point our marriage would have ended anyway and may have ended earlier, if um, not, you know, later. And one of the things that I've done a lot of research on is our nervous system dysre dysregulation and how oftentimes, whether we have a history of trauma, whether we have childhood wounds that we haven't healed, whatever the case may be, we've never maybe gone for therapy, we've never worked on any of these issues, we've taken into our marriage or into our long-term relationship with our partner. And so many of us are in a 
kind of um, response, a flight or or um, fright response, or we're in a fawn response. And if we're in a flight or fight, sorry, flight or fight response, we are running away. And this has to do with the emotional reciprocity. If um, I want too much as far as emotions from my partner, my partner is not able to give that to me on a regular basis because they're overwhelmed by a lot of other things that are going on in their life, plus me, which I know was the case in my marriage, then they're going to feel like they can never meet my expectations. They can never get it right because I'm constantly complaining. Again, this was my marriage. And so it creates this either your partner's running away from you every time you request emotional support, or they're in this um, state of fight and they're pushing back every time you get emotional. And so this is where I highly recommend to the listeners that you find a therapist who has expertise in somatic therapy or you work with a therapist who has expertise in internal family systems where you can understand the parts and those are the words they use of yourself that have these wounds that have been using uh, flight or fright flight or fight as coping mechanisms because we don't even know that we have these coping mechanisms sometimes that were healthier for us to use in childhood so that we could protect ourselves but are no longer healthy in an intimate partner relationship. So I want to share that because I think the more we understand our nervous system and our trauma responses and our childhood wounds and how things are stuck in our body, Enoch, and that it's important to heal all that. And it can take years for some people, but it definitely can be healed. And we can also rewire our brains. So um, that doesn't mean our neurotype will change, but we can we can rewire our um, brains and our neural pathways. And we don't we didn't know this, you know, years and years and years ago. But there's been so much research on it that there are so many ways we can do this differently. So let's move on to the third word picture, which is wedding day as the finish line versus the starting line. Yes. Okay. So this is um, a way to model how potentially and that and i got to be careful because um everybody is different and so um it doesn't mean every neurotypical feels this way or every neurodivergent person might feel this way um and so there is you know a, a variety uh, of where you land in these um, but hopefully this model is helpful um to understand maybe a difference in the way you view what happens on the wedding day for a neurotypical versus a neurodivergent person. And so the whole point of um, what, what does the wedding day represent? Is it a finish line uh, that you've reached a goal and congratulations, uh, you're there? Or is it a starting line where this is the beginning of a new adventure and uh, a story to be written. And I would, um, I would argue that for some neurodivergent people, um, there, that marriage is a goal to be achieved and they put a lot of effort into achieving the goal. And once you achieve the goal on wedding day, you've met, uh, a binary condition of either married or not married. And now you are married. And so you've, once you achieve that goal, nothing more needs to be done to perpetuate that state of being married. And so uh, the effort for the neurodivergent partner may be expended in attaining the goal, but once the goal is attained, then uh, they can move on to the next goal. Um, and so for the neurodivergent person, this may be their happiness comes from the stability and the sameness of a secured relationship. Uh, where there's permanent proximity. And so once you're married, um, that is actually an adjective. Um, and you are either married or non-married. And once you've become married on wedding day, you are now in that uh, category of married. That goal has been met. You have secured 
uh, a partner who's going to be in proximity to you for the rest of your life. And you are assured um, some level of sameness because of that proximity and that, that, that need for familiarity and predictability and proximity. But to the neurotypical, um, that is not the end of the story. That is actually the beginning of the story where the wedding day isn't a finish line, but it, it is a uh, starting line of an adventure. And <clears throat> what the neurotypical uh, a partner is looking for is companionship through adventure. It's um, a beginning of what can we explore together? What are some new experiences that we can partake together and new challenges to take and uh, help each other through and be companions um, and grow together in this. And so for the neurotypical, the intimacy comes from the togetherness, one through struggling and thriving through adapting to change together. And so for the neurotypical, the joy comes from the exploration with a trusted partner who has your back. And so wedding day is a starting line to a new adventure. So the, the marriage isn't an adjective, whether you're married or not. It is, an, it is a verb. It is the activity of exploration and growth to meet new challenges that happens every day. And so this is more of a dynamic view of the relationship. In, instead of being a state of being married or not married, it is marriage is a verb of this is what we do every day to meet new challenges. And, and I'm so glad that I have a partner to meet these challenges with uh, because we are cross uh, helping each other uh, meet these new challenges by having each other's back and encouraging each other through this process of growth and exploration. Yeah, I think that's a really, really, I mean, they're all helpful. I think that's really, really helpful for both partners to hear and to talk about this, because I think when we don't understand, and some people say you shouldn't have expectations, but you know, we all have expectations. That's just real life. We all have expectations when we come into a marriage and we're specifically talking about marriage here, but it could be a long-term relationship without the, you know, formal marriage. You know, if your expectation is that, you know, once you're together, then it's forever and the work is done, that is not going to be the expectation of your partner who's a different neurotype than you if it's a non-autistic, neurotypical and an autistic partner. And so talking about how you can have date nights on a regular basis and how you can make time for physical and sexual intimacy and how you can make time to talk about traveling together or vacations or childcare or finances and doing that at the beginning of the relationship if you know you know you're a mixed neurotype couple but if you've just recently found out you're a mixed neurotype couple taking time to talk about all those things again maybe with a third party it could be a coach or a therapist and you can go to my website i have a list of every coach and therapist i think that's been on the podcast on my website which is neurodiverselove.com but sometimes when you've been in the relationship for so long and you didn't know you were a mixed neurotype couple it's hard to figure out how to move forward on those topics that you never discussed in the beginning. So this is really, really important, again, for both partners to understand that they came into the marriage or the long-term relationship with very, very different expectations of what this kind of uh, partnership should and would be. Really, really helpful. So I think we're on the fourth one which um, okay. we will will end on, which is which is another really good one. And this is the egg of marriage. Yes, the egg of marriage. And so um, let me start it this way from a neurotypicals perspective. When we get when when a neurotypical uh, partner gets married, they're hoping for the union of the two becoming one. Um, that's a, a, a religious uh, picture that comes out of the Bible. Uh, and, and I think it kind of fits for a lot of neurotypicals who they feel like here's a chance for me to become intertwined um, and my, my living happily ever together with my partner is growing closer and closer with 
my partner in so many different ways, physically, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. But what we, what we, some neurotypicals have with our neurodivergent partners as time goes on is that try as we might, we can never get close to the other member of in the partnership. And so it's kind of like in an egg, you typically have one yolk in the egg. Well, once in a long while, you may come across a double yolk egg. And if you can imagine what that's like, uh, the yolks inside of an egg are distinct and, and a double yolk egg, um, just because of the way the egg whites work, they never allow the yolks to touch. And so you've got two distinct yolks in this uh, neurodivergent egg of a marriage. Um, and uh, they're in, inside, they're encapsulated inside the shell of marriage, but they never touch. Now, what the neurodivergent partner experiences is, oh, wonderful. I've got exactly what I want. I have a, a built-in proximity with this partner for the rest of my life. Um, and uh, I'm happy as a clam because things are predictable. Um, and uh, But I don't ever need to have to touch this other egg. It's kind of like some people, they don't like their food touching. Um, and they, that food has to remain separate because ugh, if they were touched, that, that contaminates the food. Um, and so for a neurotypical person, they experience their neurodivergent partner as a yolk, a fellow yolk in an egg that doesn't want to be touched. Um, but for the neurotypical, that was their dream. Their dream is to touch. It is to become one, is to become intertwined. It is to grow together and to share deeper and more intimately uh, and it, within the safe confines of the shell. Um, and so for the neurotypical, the yoke, to become one, it means to be fully seen, to be fully understood, um, and to be anticipated, to be uh, appreciated, and, and to be accommodated. And so that level of touch um, is experienced by the neurotypical as, as, as uh, a, tra a traumatic request from the neurodivergent spouse. And so for the duration of the marriage, the neurotypical feels like I'm inside the shell of the marriage, but I can never really touch my partner. Um, and so that leads to this profound sense of unsatisfaction of I am not uh, able uh, to get what I need out of this relationship. Now, where this model becomes enlightening is what happens to the other eggs in the carton. Because this egg isn't the only egg in the carton, it's, it's one of many eggs in, in the carton of community. And there are other eggs in the carton which have only one yolk in them. They are our friends and our families in a traditional uh, relationship. Uh, where there is uh, compatibility, um, there is congruency in the neurotypes. And so in those relationships, they, the fellow eggs in the carton experience that oneness. Um, and they look at this other egg, this neurodivergent egg, and say, oh, it looks just normal from the outside. Uh, it looks like any other egg, but they don't see un inside the shell that there are two separate yolks that never touch. Um, and so... Uh, this model uh, really points out how what appears from the outside isn't always what happens on the inside. Um, and oftentimes it is only the neurotypical yoke that perceives what's going on. They're the only ones that feel that there's something amiss. People from the outside um, see uh, a shell just like any other shell. The neurodivergent partner doesn't notice that there is uh, uh, two yolks instead of one, uh, because that's their happy place. They they like the separation, uh, and they they appreciate the proximity, and so it is the only the the single uh, neurotypical yoke uh, that recognizes, hey, something's wrong, and and I'm not I'm not happy. I think the uh, the egg analogy kind of illustrates the different perspectives. Uh, the egg. And, and sometimes if you were to take this uh, analogy even further, somebody in my support group was pointing out that um, inside that egg, uh, the two yolks are not, don't end up being the same size. And to the neurotypical, it feels like one yolk becomes 
much larger than the other yoke, um, and and that the size of the yoke represents um, the the work required to maintain the executive functioning of the relationship, where uh, the neurotypical may feel like I need to work two or three times harder to manage all the details of life together, whether uh, it is um, employment, uh, whether it is the level of care for required to uh, take care of the kids, uh, whether uh, it is a different form of attention to maintain the relationship and initiation in the relationship. Um, initiating conversations, initiating connections. The neurotypical may feel like there's a, a dramatic um, disparity in the size of the yokes, and they may feel like I am in order for this relationship to 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 maintain. I have to put in eighty to ninety percent of the work, and it doesn't feel like an equal partnership. Um, so, um, yeah. <laughs> So th that can be a challenge. And, and so, again, I'm going to speak to the autistic partners out there. I know that I hear, especially in the couple support group, a lot of autistic partners saying, I try and I try and try and nothing I ever do is right. I always feel like I'm being put down. I feel shame for not having been able to be all these things. My partner, the person I love more than anybody, wants from me. Um, so I've stopped trying or I've gotten angry because I feel like I'm not worthy. I remember in my marriage, my ex-husband used to say, I'm not good enough for you. I'll never be good enough for you. And I couldn't understand where that came from. Um, and then as our marriage went on, he would say, I, I can never meet your expectations. Your expectations are too high. And now you know, my heart goes out to him because I never meant I and 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 I really want the autistic partners to hear this. I don't think that any of your neurotypical or non-autistic partners want to hurt you by making you feel that way. But when you don't understand each other's neurotypes and you're looking for your needs to be met in a relationship with somebody that you don't know has very, very, very different needs than you. You just wonder if it's ever going to happen, if it's possible. And again, I think that the more compassion we can have about each other's needs and the more we can regulate our nervous systems individually, and we can co-regulate together, the more we can understand what triggers us, the more we can understand you know, if, if your autistic partner has alexithymia, if they can create some tools where they can have a better understanding of maybe what's going on in their bodies, I think there are opportunities for learning and growing. But I also, as somebody who was married for 30 years to a man that I loved deeply when we, you know, went to the courthouse to dissolve our marriage, I know that understanding and accepting what is may not be enough. And if both partners are willing to learn about themselves and learn about each other, they're willing to heal, because I think that's really critical in any relationship where there has been conflict and you haven't been able to repair because you didn't understand each other or how to repair. If you can heal and both agree to work and work on the relationship and yourselves and to grow, I do think change is possible. But I know that so many people in neurodiverse relationships have so much toxicity. And it's because of both partners. It's not one or the other and not understanding each other and themselves. And also, in addition to the toxicity, there's so much unintentional hurt and pain that they've caused each other. So, you know, these word pictures are so helpful, and I hope that both partners will have discussions around what that looks like in their own relationships and how each other feels, and if there are opportunities for healing and change down the road, and if there aren't, maybe this is not the right relationship for one or both of you, and that's okay too. 
So Enoch, the one thing I want to say is that I have started another support group. It's with Jody Carlton and it's called Navigating Your Neurodiverse Relationship. And it's for all neurotypes. So if you're autistic, mm. autistic, ADHD, yeah, neurotypical, however you define your neurotype or however you um, describe yourself, it doesn't matter. We have a limit um, of space or limited spaces, and it's $25. We meet on the first Wednesday of every month. We have two groups, one that meets at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and another that meets at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm going to share this, I think, on most of the podcast episodes because... I don't know of another place like this that's available on a monthly basis for all neurotypes to talk about the discernment piece, the decisions they're trying to make. Because ending my marriage was the hardest decision I have ever had to make in my life. Hmm. I mean, and I had to choose whether or not my father was going to, you know, uh, get any more um, treatment when he was in the hospital and he passed away. I had to deal with my mother and her uh, care. She had Alzheimer's and those were, you know, major, major, major decisions that I had to make with both my parents. Ending my marriage was harder than that. And I say that because I have such grace for people that are in that discernment phase. And I know your divorce was just recently final and you're going to go through your emotions and your roller coaster ride I'm sure it's different for everybody but I so appreciate so appreciate you joining the support group being the, the only man for so long we have we have more men that are coming now um, and for creating these word pictures to help put your feelings and your thoughts and your ideas down for others to see and maybe resonate with and I hope that they're helpful for both partners. And if there are any autistic partners out there who've done something similar that explains your views and your feelings, please reach out to me. I would love to have you on the podcast to share that. So Enoch, we're about to end the podcast and I'd like to know if there's anything else that you wanna share and I'm gonna have you back so you can talk about the other word pictures you've created. How can people get the information that you have that you've collected for a long time <laughs> if they want to reach out to you? And if there's any last words that you want to share, feel free to do that. Sure. Um, I do have a web page um, that uh, I created that I use to collect all my research on uh, neurodiversity. And um, I apologize for... Uh, the name of the domain because it was I, I just happened to have a different domain for my personal blog and I just uh, added this web page to that and so it uh, it may hopefully it doesn't turn people off but uh, the the URL for my resource uh, page y.com slash nd and nd of course stands for neurodiverse neurodiversity um, so if you go there, you'll get a, a list of my curated list of resources that uh, books that I've read, articles I've come across, uh, TED Talks, podcasts, um, and a lot, of, you'll recognize a lot of the names um, uh, on there. Uh... Yeah, it's very, very <laughs> comprehensive. So I highly recommend those of you that are, you know, on this journey, again, whether you're autistic non-autistic, holistic, neurotypical, however you define yourself, I think there are, there's a lot of information there that you will find something that will be helpful. And I mean, really kind of, you've done a PhD on this, Enoch. <laughs> <laughs> and is there anything else that you want to share as we end the podcast? Because this has been a, a really great conversation. Um, well, I, I think I just want to personally thank you for being a part of my journey. And, and I think it is so critical uh, to be part of a community and not to be isolated, um, because I think it's in the isolation that we die uh, internally. And, and some people end up really contemplating suicide because it's so difficult. Um, and that, that profound loneliness is so pervasive and deep. And there are so, so many years of trauma involved. And so if you find yourself in that, please reach out to a community 
um, and find a, a place where you are not alone and that you have a voice and that people can validate your experience. Um, so Mona, I, I thank you for the lifeline that you threw me through, through your uh, support group. Um, and um, I just really appreciate you for um, being a part of my healing. Uh, and then not only that, but encouraging me uh, to, to uh, start um, being a support to other people um, uh, through the webpage and through my support group. And I think maybe in the future, maybe some of these word pictures may end up in a book um, oh, or for your typical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. Enoch, you definitely have a way with words on paper. And it was, you know, our conversations are always filled with a lot of insight. And I really appreciate that. And it's, you know, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and to see your journey. And I hope that, you know, you're going to come back and talk about the other word pictures. And I do hope that as you move forward in 2024, that you have a lot more clarity about the next steps in your life and in your journey. And I wish that for our entire, the, all the listeners that you, as you move forward in 2024, that you have a lot more clarity about what brings you joy, what brings you peace, and how to do more of those things in your life. So thank you, Enoch. I appreciate you being here immensely. And I look forward to our next conversation.